0: Welcome, everybody, to 2017. I'm grateful that you're here today. Hey, I want to start by just loosening things up just a little bit. Some of you guys are still a little uptight from last night. I want you to turn to the person right here, this way, this direction, your right, my left. And I want you to put their, your hands on them in an appropriate fashion, like on their shoulders. And I want you to just give them a nice massage, deep tissue massage in an appropriate fashion. Come on, come on. It's all right if you don't know them. It's even better if you don't. Get in there nice and deep. Knead the dough. Some of you guys aren't cooperating here. I do a little karate chops. All right, let's go to the other side now. Oh yeah. Let's start by kneading the dough, get in there nice and deep. Do some karate chop action. Itsy Bitsy Spider. Don't forget the piano keys as well. All right, wonderful. Stop touching the people next to you. (laughs) Hands off. Please keep your hands to yourself for the remainder of the service, and we should be fine. Have you ever touched something that you immediately regret? I don't mean like a piping hot stove or a thorny cactus or the neighbor beside you. But I mean like a splotch of oozing, oily, black tar. And let's just say that you stepped on this oozing, oily splotch of black tar by mistake. You were just enjoying a solitary stroll along the beach when all of a sudden, oozing, oily, black tar immediately superglues to the sole of your foot, spreading out in between your toes, and all the little piggies cried, wee, 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 (laughs) all the way home. Now let's just say that this oozing, oily, black tar Is so rich in its oozing, oily, black fossil hydrocarbons and organic matter that it transfers and thickens to everything you touch. And so you start by trying to scrape it off the sole of your foot with your hand, and before you know it, your fingers are blackened and sticky with oozing, oily, black tar. You then run your fingers through your hair as you try and contemplate what to do, but your fingers don't run. They simply stick like gum in the strands of your hair, leaving you with an Elvis Presley pompadour. You then continue by scratching your chin and pondering what your next move might be, and suddenly you've sprouted and oozing, oily, black, tar goatee. You cover your mouth with your hands and try to cry out for help. And your oozing, oily, black, tar goatee is spread into a full-fledged beard. This is not good. You might need some mittens like the kids who've contracted chicken pox so they'll stop scratching. But in order to get your mittens, You have to go home, and in order to go home, you have to drive. And in order to drive, you have to get into your car. And in order to get into your car, you have to get your key, which is inside of your pocket, that is quickly filling up with oozing, oily, black tar. And so you you sit and wait for help to arrive. But with each passing moment and every movement, the oozing, oily, black tar transfers and thickens and superglues. And when help finally arrives, at last, you look more like an all-terrain, rugged dependability Michelin tire. You know, sin, sin spreads like oozing, oily, black tar. And humanity has a sin condition. Cycles of violence and destruction and anger and madness and gossip and murder and pride and envy and jealousy. And you boil all of this sin down and you've got a cycle that's perpetuated By selfishness. And unfortunately, all our efforts to scrub and clean and scour and rid ourselves of this sin condition will forever be futile. We need a Savior. A Savior who can truly save. A Savior who can put an end to the spreading, oozing, oily. Lactar of sin. Well, today we continue, we actually conclude our sermon series called Behold. Over the course of this sermon series, we've been exploring some of the biggest beholds of Scripture, moments where the biblical authors use words like hine in Hebrew or idu in Greek to draw special attention to the actions of God. During this sermon series we've looked at Isaiah chapter 43 verse 19 which reads behold I am doing a new thing Matthew 123 behold the virgin shall conceive Luke 210 fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy and 2 Corinthians 517 if anyone is in Christ behold they're new creation because the new has come Well today as we conclude It's all about beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But before we enter into our text in view, let's stand as we read from our memory verse. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand. We do this to revere the Word of God. It's life-changing, transforming power. And let's read these words together from Revelation chapter 1. Verse seven, it says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So Lord, we come before you today. We wanna hear from you in a personal way, in a powerful way. We want to know you deeper We want to be changed by you. We want to understand what it means that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. We want to encounter you today, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, attune our hearts and minds to receive your word. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our text in view this morning begins with the famous camel-coated, leather-belted, honey-and-locusts-for-lunch, John the Baptizer. Now, John the Baptizer is not a Baptist. He's not a Lutheran. He's not Episcopalian. He's not even a Methodist, but he does have a method. And his method was to baptize people in a baptism Of repentance. People would come to John and say, Hey, John, I've been going the wrong way. I've been going down this path of of worthlessness, of sin, of destruction, and I need to turn around and go the completely opposite direction. I need to go God's way, in God's direction. And John would dunk them in the Jordan River, baptize them. Well, There were some other folks who were congregating along the banks of the Jordan River, these religious authorities of the Jewish people. And they began to hassle John the Baptizer and they asked him, Who are you? To which John replied, Well, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the anointed one. I'm not the Savior of the world. In fact, I'm not even worthy to unlace his PF flyers. I'm not worthy. I'm simply here to prepare his way. And that's where we pick it up in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he, that is John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him. And I, I have to stop right there. Because I wonder what that would be like. Like, what do you do when Jesus comes toward you? What do you say? Well... John the Baptizer says something impeccable, like these are perfect words. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John's entire life's purpose is to bear witness to Jesus. His whole life's purpose is simply to be an arrow, pointing to Jesus, putting focus and attention on Jesus. Verse 32 says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. So the Spirit is not a dove, but it descends like one. And it remained on him, not like a bird perched on his shoulder but this is an expression that indicates how Jesus permanently possessed the Holy Spirit. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This morning, I want to focus exclusively on one verse, on one line. John 1, 29b. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what John says when he sees Jesus. But what does he mean by this? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is this Lamb of God? And how does he actually take away the sin of the world? Let's flip back to our passage as we explore these questions. Verse 29, The next day he, John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, when you think of a lamb, you probably think of an animal that's cute and cuddly, gentle, meek, and mild, Well, when I think of a lamb, I think of the first date that Tara and I ever went on. It's debated if this is a date or not. She says it's not. We were just friends. But I picked her up, and we went to a Greek restaurant. And I ordered the pita bread and hummus. Very exotic, I know, very foreign I have my lovely wife, Tara, to thank for exposing me to a whole array of exotic and foreign foods. Before we met, I wasn't into these strange exotic foods like strawberries and avocados and potatoes and beans. But she has force-fed me these foods, and now I thoroughly enjoy them. So I order the, the pita bread and the hummus, and she orders lamb. And I thought... How could you? Jesus is the lamb of God. How could you eat lamb? A couple years later, I tried lamb, and I'm like, wow, this is really good. In fact, last year on Easter, we ate lamb. I was so theologically out of sorts. I'm like, here we are. On Easter, of all days, chowing down on Lamb. Well, the Lamb of God is Jesus, sinless and sacrificial. Let's unpack what this means. Lamb of God is a title that describes the sinless character and the sacrifice of Jesus. Lamb of God is a phrase that packs in itself the concepts of innocence, voluntary sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, and effective obedience. I think back to the story in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac, and they're preparing for their father-son getaway trip. You know the, the story where It's essentially, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. That father-son getaway trip. Well, good old Abe, he's putting the wood together for the offering. He's putting the knife together for the offering. He's putting the fire together for the offering. And young Isaac is very perceptive, very attentive. And he says, "Uh, Dad, uh, where is the lamb. Where is the lamb? That's the question of the entire Old Testament. Where is the lamb? And then you turn the page into the New Testament, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's emphatic, it's screaming at us. Behold the lamb of God. Here he is. It's Jesus. God provides. And then once you have trusted him, You join the heavenly choirs, as it says in Revelation 5.12, and you sing a new song, worthy is the Lamb. I love what 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 says about Jesus. It says, "For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God." Jesus became like humanity in every single way, with hair and teeth and eyes and ears and gums. He probably experienced bad breath from time to time. He probably experienced BO as well. Jesus became like humanity in every single way except for sin, in order to take away our sin. So behold, The Lamb of God is Jesus, sinless and sacrificial. Let's continue here with verse uh, uh, 29b. We'll, We'll pick it up here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now that sounds like trippy back to the future time warp stuff. the Lamb of God is Jesus preexistent. Let's unpack this further. Jesus is a son from eternity, not from a particular moment in time. Jesus is the son who exists from eternity alongside the Father. And Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and was before all time, space, and eternity. On Christmas night, I was playing Legos with my nephew, Cooper, and we were building an Angry Birds motorcycle. And as we were piecing this together, as we were constructing this motorcycle and flipping through the pages of the instructions manual, I was just reflecting on how smart he had become over the past six years. I remember thinking, man, Cooper... You are so smart. I remember before you were even born. I remember it. I mean, fragile things were a lot more durable, but things just weren't as fun as they are now. I remember thinking about this. I remember it. Before you were even a twinkle in your mother's eye, I existed. Well, Jesus might say, before the world was even a twinkle, I existed. So behold, the Lamb of God is Jesus, sinless and sacrificial and preexistent. Let's continue with verse 31 here. I myself did not know him. The Son of God. The Son of God, who here baptizes with the Holy Spirit, was just called the Word some 20 verses before in John chapter 1, verse 14, which reads about the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The Lamb of God is Jesus, God incarnate. The incarnation is the embodiment of God the Son in human flesh as Jesus. This fancy word, this theological term incarnation, it literally means in the flesh. And an easy way to remember this is to think about tacos. You got your quesadilla, you've got your cilantro and your onions and your salsa, and of course... You've got your pipe in hot carne asada. Jesus is God in the carne, in the meat, in the flesh. And that's what the incarnation means. Well, how in the flesh, in the meat, is Jesus? Well, he's a 200% man, 100% human, and 100% divine, coexisting, co eternal in one person called the hypostatic union. That's a theological term that theologians like to throw around, make themselves feel really good and smart. It just means that he has both these natures, 100% human, 100% divine, the 200% man. So Jesus might say something to the effect of, well, before the world was even a twinkle, I existed. In fact, I invented the world because I'm God, and I invented the twinkle because I'm God. So behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God, the sinless and sacrificial one, the one who's preexistent, the one who is God incarnate. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. But how? How does Jesus take away the sin of the world? Well, the cross. Duh. Everybody knows that. But do you know how absurd that sounds? 2,000 years ago, some peasant from a podunk town in the ancient Near East gets nailed to a Roman cross, just like plenty of other criminals of the day. But Jesus was no criminal. Jesus was no ordinary man condemned to die a brutal death. Sure, Jesus was a great teacher and sure, Jesus was a great philosopher, a great leader, but he's more. Jesus is sinless and sacrificial, preexistent, God incarnate, the one who takes away the sin of the world. If you were to talk to a friend or a family member, a co-worker, maybe even a complete stranger, and they were to say to you, like, hey, I I know you're a Christian. You go to church, you read the Bible, you pray. Like, what's up with the cross? What does it all mean? What would you say? How would you communicate the saving significance of the death of Jesus? He died for my sins is probably like the automatic, pre-programmed response that we give. He died for my sins. But how? How? In what way? What does this look like? Well, throughout the history of the church, theologians have formulated various theories about the saving significance of Jesus' death, how Jesus' death is effective for our salvation, how Jesus' death is for us. So we're going to take a look at a couple of different views. We're going to look at what it means that how the Lamb of God actually takes away the sin of the world. So within the pages of the New Testament, the saving significance of Jesus' death is represented primarily through five constellations of images, each of which is borrowed from the public life of the ancient Mediterranean world. In other words, the New Testament authors took images from their everyday ordinary lives to describe and explain the saving significance of Jesus' death. They took images like the court of law or commercial dealings, personal relationships, worship, and the battleground. So let's take a look at this first one with the court of law. In this view, it's commonly referred to as justification. So as a result of sin, human beings are guilty. We deserve to die. But through the cross, God acts to save sinners from death. Christ suffers as a substitute for our sins and receives God's punishment. This is a very popular view, especially in American theology. It's commonly referred to as penal substitution, but it's not the only view. But it is an important view that we see uh, grounded in Romans 4.25. He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised for our justification to make us right with God. So in this view, the guilty person stands before the divine judge for sentencing and hears the words, not guilty. Why? Because Jesus has become the guilty one, bearing the punishment. So this is one interpretation, one view that we see in the New Testament. It's all about the saving significance of Jesus' death. We also see it with commercial dealings, also known as ransom or redemption This is the idea that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, connected with the ideas of deliverance and release that are drawn from the Roman slave trade and also the hopes of the Old Testament peoples who were under foreign tyrants. As they were suffering under the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, it it was this hope of being set free, of being ransomed, of being redeemed. And from the lips of Jesus, we hear this interpretation, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this view, God has triumphed over evil, freed the humans under slavery, and even conquered the power of death. Well, next we have personal relationships, reconciliation. Reconciliation assumes a state of hostility. There's hostility between a lot of different stuff. And in the New Testament, this hostility is understood to be present in a variety of relationships. Between God and humanity. Between humanity and creation. Not just the earth, but the supernatural powers and principalities. And of course, between human and human interactions. We see it in the relationship between master and slave, male and female, Jew and Gentile, sick and the well, the rich and the poor. But the work of Jesus in reconciliation is effective in bringing peace in all of these arenas and more. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 is where we certainly see reconciliation. For if while we were in means we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In this view, what God has accomplished by the cross is healing and reconciliation of relationships and also communities. Reconciliation, this act of bringing back together two distanced parties. It's a past event rooted in In the cross, and what Jesus did by dying on the cross, not coming off the cross, but dying on the cross. This work continues until the eschaton, until the end of days. Another view that we're gonna look at is from worship or sacrifice, how Jesus' death has saving significance because it was poured out as an offering. His death is interpreted as a covenant sacrifice the Passover sacrifice, the sin offering, the offering of firstfruits, the ritual day of atonement, and an offering like that of Isaac and Abraham. Ephesians 5.2 illustrates this. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In this view, Jesus' self-sacrifice is not an event where humanity tries to offer something to appease an angry God, but rather God in Christ is both the giver and receiver of the final, ultimate, one-time gift. And now the last view that we're going to look at today is the view called the battleground, referring to the triumph over evil. The death of Jesus shows how God measures loyalty, triumph. And because God is the uncontested sovereign of the universe, because he's all-powerful over everything, Jesus' faithfulness in dying on the cross, it repeals all other powers, all other purposes too. 1 Corinthians 15, 54b, death has been swallowed up in victory. So in this view, Jesus triumphs. As he fights against these evil powers of the world, the tyrants under which humankind is in bondage. And he suffers, or we suffer, but in Jesus, God reconciles the world to himself. So there you have it. Wake up, wake up, come back, come back. A lot coming at you. But these are a number of the views, just five of the many of the many images and symbols and metaphors used to communicate the saving significance of Jesus' death. But the saving significance of Jesus' death, the event of his execution, it cannot be painted in one color. It's far too significant. No one metaphor can fully capture what Jesus has done on the cross. So what does it all mean? I want to invite the band back up as we wrap things up and try and unpack what this all means. One of my favorite childhood memories is camping at... El Capitan State Beach with my dad, just the two of us. We'd spend all day long at the beach in the crashing waves. And then we'd warm ourselves on the hot, sun, on the hot sand beneath the cliffs. But then in the late afternoon, when the wind would howl and white caps would emerge atop the ocean's surface, We'd pack up our things and walk back to the campsite. With a fishing rod in one hand and a bucket of sand toys in the other, I'd walk alongside my dad through a tunnel of buttery popcorn-colored mustard plants. The insects were humming in a constant buzzing choir. But what I remember most is when we would arrive at the campsite and there we would sit, each in our separate chairs. The transistor radio would be gargling through the Stanley Cup playoffs between the Los Angeles Kings and the Montreal Canadiens. And there we would sit and scrape the tar from the soles of our feet. And we'd scrape and scrape and scrape. But even after all of our scraping, a remnant still clung to our feet, oozing, oily, black tar. And now people say, well, you've got to use baby oil or soap and water or even ice. A couple of years ago, I found the trick. I found a strange orangey substance and a couple drops on a splotch of oozing oily black tar, and it was gone in seconds. It's called GooGon. And now I'm not a doctor, so don't try this at home, maybe. And I'm not a sales rep for GooGon either. But it works on tar. And you and I, we have an oozing, oily, black tar problem. A problem of sin. And we can scrape and scrape and scrape, and we can douse ourselves in goo gone. It's not going to take away the sin of the world. But behold, the Lamb of God is Jesus, sinless, sacrificial, pre-existent God incarnate who takes away the sin of the world. And he does so by the cross, by giving his life by the cross, the painful, the shameful, the pitiful, the disgraceful, wonderful cross. And a deeper understanding of the cross, it leads to a fuller life of faith, of freedom, of hope, of joy, of commitment, of triumph, of fearlessness. Because the Lamb of God took away our sin by taking our place, by giving his life as a ransom, by reconciling us back to God, by giving his life as an offering, by triumphing, by triumphing over evil. But the cross of Jesus Christ, it demands a response. You cannot just sit back and do nothing in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. Sitting back and doing nothing is a response. So what are you going to do about it? In 2017, today is day one. What are you going to do in light of what Jesus has done on the cross? I want to leave us with the words of a great missionary called C.T. Studd. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. May this be our prayer. May this be our prayer. Because God has freed us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, into the light. We have been slaves in bondage and in darkness and in sin, but we are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness, to the way of right living. As we walk the path of light, away from the path of darkness, we like the people who came to John the baptizer, have repented of our sins or are gonna repent today of our sins and we're gonna move forward in the life of faith, into the life of freedom, into the life of hope and trust and assurance because this is who God has created us to be. The God who has sent his son to pay the penalty, to give his life as a ransom, to overcome evil, He has come to be with us so that we would be with him. So don't go back to your ordinary everyday lives. Don't go back to the tar. Go to Jesus. Come to him and live your life for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. So Father, we come before you today. We ask for a new start. On this wonderful day, as we embark on 2017, would it be a change? Would you see a change in our hearts? Would you be the change in our hearts? That we could live for you, that we could die to ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow you. I pray, Father, if there's someone in here today who needs to accept you for the first time, who needs to repent and change and come to you, that they would pray, Jesus, you come into my heart I believe that you died on the cross for my sin but you rose again once and for all you've defeated death you've given us life and I want to follow you in this new life so Holy Spirit guide me and lead me we give you everything we are Jesus Jesus in your name we